Hey, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to a very special episode of the Built on Purpose podcast, where each episode I interview exceptional leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, philosophers, and straight up interesting people to explore their outlook on life, work, and leadership. My hope for our listeners is that you can take away a special nugget of information from each of these interviews, something that will serve you and the people most important to you in pursuing a life built on purpose. My name is Brian Moore, co-founder and managing partner of Y Scouts, and today I'm interviewing John Schufelt. John is without a doubt one of the most accomplished individuals I've ever met. He's a practicing emergency room doc, a practicing attorney, the Phoenix Police Department's SWAT team medical director, the author of multiple books on the ingredients of outliers, an adjunct professor at ASU's School of Law, the founder and CEO of MeMD, a pilot, a guitar player, and a recent TEDx speaker. And by the way, this is just a partial list. In this mesmerizing interview, we talk about life growing up as an adopted child, the two character traits that have come to define his life, what it's like to save a life, and on the flip side, what it's like to watch someone pass away. We discuss his drive for constant knowledge acquisition and the power of humility. I know you'll agree with me after listening to this interview. For someone who's accomplished so much, John is one of the most down-to-earth and kind individuals you'll ever meet. And perhaps the most exciting part of this interview is our discussion around the right questions we need to be asking ourselves every day in order to live the most meaningful lives we can. I am just thrilled to bring you this fantastic interview with John Schufeld. Well, good morning, John. It is an absolute pleasure to have you today. Thank you so much for taking time out of your incredibly busy schedule and spend it uh, with me and our audience. Um, Brian, the pleasure was mine. I was looking forward to it. So thanks for inviting me. Awesome. Awesome. So I want to start, actually, you were adopted growing up. And during your formative years, you described yourself as a well-mannered, warm-hearted, persevering, failure, which is really interesting given all that you've accomplished. Talk to us a little bit about how your childhood shaped your philosophies of today. Well, I guess, you know, pretty succinctly, I I was not all that good in school. I got, you know, F's, D's, and C's. Um, when I was in first grade, I was moved into the advanced class, which was a shock to both myself and my parents, but I only lasted in there about a week before they put me, put me back into the, you know, the adult class, as I called it, the DOLT class. <laughs> um, so, you know, a- academically, I was always average or below average. And then sports, I, you know, certainly tried hard, worked, worked hard and was okay, uh, but never stand out, uh, in my best, uh, my best sport was discus, where I was again okay, or maybe better than okay for that, but certainly never a standout. So, uh, you know, one of the things, actually, two of the things that you you talk about, two traits that I think really had a big impact on just uh, on you, is number one, not taking yourself too seriously, and number two, having a never give up type of mentality. Where'd that come from? Um, I think I learned early on that, that I could persevere my way through most things. And, you know, I'll give you the one example. I was cut from the sophomore basketball team in, in high school where the coach had said, anybody that makes two free throws in a row is on the team. And I made two in a row because the one that I could do was shoot and he still cut me. And I, 
I remember going home and, you know, my, my parents, my father being more mad at me than he was the coach. And I was, you know, incredibly disappointed and kind of dismayed because I said, well, you said this. And, you know, the coach kind of said, yeah, so what? But I thought, all right, I'll show you. And it was that sort of, I'll show you perspective that has got me through a lot of things. And when I say you, it's probably more myself than anybody else. I remember once in college when I was just starting to get my kind of academic feet under me, um, somebody asked me a question, you know, what kind of a group of students were talking about some problem. They asked me a question. I remember this girl to this day, I remember her name because I've looked her up and wanted to thank her. And when the student asked me this question, she laughed and said, why are you asking him? So I remember thinking to myself, and she was this really attractive, smart girl. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't care what grade you get. But if it kills me, I will get a better grade than you. And I don't know if I did or didn't. But that literally was like my whole my whole mo going forward. Was, I'm going to beat this this young woman. And then how about the, the 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 not taking yourself too seriously? Where do you think that came from? You know, I, I probably always had a, a a little bit of an off beater and definitely off color sense of humor. And you know, I. I Growing up, I did find myself in so many crazy situations, doing so many stupid things, you know, for which I'd have to explain myself. I just started thinking, you know, there was kind of a good deal of good deal of humor in this. And and it was just, you know, almost running out of gas in an ambulance while, while driving a patient to the hospital. I mean, all these things were we afterwards you go, oh, for God's sakes, you've got to be kidding. And it was just kind of this repetition of really, I cannot believe that just happened sort of thing. And, and you know, finding the humor in it. So, uh, and I'm going to get to in a moment, um, some of the many, uh, accolades and achievements that, uh, you've amassed over the course of, of your career. But before I get into that, I want to ask a question and, and I'm curious, did you know what you wanted to be when you were growing up? Did you have a, what, what, you know, kind of, what were you most passionate about growing up as a kid? Were you certain of what your life was going to be like at a really early age? I, I told my parents I wanted to be a dog. And so for years they said, what do you, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, I want to be a dog because you know the dog we had at the time, Bozo, bit like everybody in my family and everybody in the neighborhood except me. So I really believe that Bozo and I had some sort of, you know, shared consciousness and he had it pretty well. I'm like, who doesn't want to be a dog? I definitely want to be a dog. But, but when I was, a, when I was a pretty young kid and I would say probably seven, six age, my parents got me a book called the physician and I'll never forget it was by time life. And I, I couldn't read all the words I'm sure at that time. Uh, but I got the gist of it. I'm like, Hey, this is what I want to do. And so for as long as I can remember, I think, gosh, I want to be a doctor. But I also knew that going through high school and, and maybe my first year in college, that I better step my game up quite a bit if I was going to do this. And when my parents would point that out, I'd always say to them, well, would it matters, you know, when it counts, I'll do it. And they always, you know, I would suspect would roll their eyes and say, yeah, we've heard that before. But, um, but finally, I did get my academic feet under me, and, and that's, what, that's what ultimately worked out. So clearly this theme of relentless learning has been a really, really big part of your life. And I just want to share, and I'm going to have to ask everybody who's listening, uh, you're going to have to give me a moment here because I'm going to rattle off a number of uh, your accomplishments from a learning perspective. And I'm sure I'm going to leave out a few, but I'm I'm going to do the best that I can. So uh, a BA in sociology and criminology from Drake. 
a doctor of medicine from the Chicago Medical School. You did your emergency medicine residency at Christ Hospital and Medical Center. You did uh, your chief, you were chief resident at, uh, of emergency medicine at Christ Hospital and Medical Center. You then went on to get your MBA from ASU. You then went on to get a JD from ASU. And if that's not enough, you then went on to get a Six Sigma black belt from ASU. And um, I'm just going to call this some other stuff. You've authored a series called the Outlier Series, and I believe there's six books in the series. You are a pilot. You are the team, uh, the, SW- the Phoenix Police Department SWAT team medical director. And, oh, on the side, I happen to hear you're one hell of a guitar player. So I, I know I've left some things out, but I have to tell you, as I read that list, John, it's emasculating. I feel like an absolute slouch. And I have to ask, clearly this relentless learning disposition is something that you just, you live it. What role has learning played for you and, and how has it taken such a central role in your life? Well, I, first, let me make, if you don't mind, let me make a couple of corrections. I literally know about three songs on a guitar. Um, Hotel California is my best. And I don't think any of the members of the Eagles would even recognize it as Hotel California <laughs> while I played it. So I'll, I'll disavow you of that one. You know, the other thing is, you know, I, I, you know, I'm clearly an overcompensator. And just to add value to that, I used to drive a Hummer. So I'll just I'll leave it at that. Um, you know, the, um, you know, I, I think for me, the first off, I, I really enjoy school and I really enjoy learning. And what I like best about it is, I feel like when you're when you are in it and when you're out of it, it's like putting on a new set of glasses because I can't tell you how many times that I've walked out of across a stage or out of class and said, holy cow, I cannot believe I didn't know all this stuff before. How did I ever survive? And two, I look at a problem and say, holy cow, how was I not seeing this for what it could be as opposed to how was I not seeing this as an opportunity as opposed to a problem? Because of this new set of glasses comes a new perspective, and with a new perspective, looks at new ways to analyze an old problem. And for me, that's been, you know, that's really been the most enjoyable aspect of this. So I do, I try to go back to school every 10 years. Um, and I always really look forward to it. You know, there, believe me, there are times during, I'm like, holy cow, this is, you know, this is a little bit much. But, but you know, 95% of the time, I just love it. And uh, I look forward to the very next adventure. How, you know, to say that I admire the amount of dedication you've put into learning would be truly an understatement. Given how much you have going on, how do you balance everything? I strive for mediocrity and you're going to laugh, but, but it's kind of true. I was, you know, I, so for emergency medicine, for example, and this isn't a place to be mediocre, but what I mean by that is a long time ago, a guy who was, who was an MDJD, he was, you know, one in the top two or three of the smartest people I've ever met, you know, said to me, he said, look, if you're going to practice emergency medicine, if you strive for the 100% rate, he said, you'll be horrible emergency medicine physician. You have to strive for the 95% confidence interval because with that and with informed consent and with good patient um, interaction skills, that's where you need to be because to get that other 5% is generally unnecessary and, and often there's no return on investment. So I kind of approach a lot of things like that. Um, 
you know, I'll describe myself as, as wide and shallow. Um, I, I know a little bit about a fair amount of subjects, uh, which I like and really fits my personality. Um, and so when I say I strive for mediocrity, I don't feel like I, I have to be the absolute subject matter authority in anything. But if I have a moderately good perspective or a good understanding of something, uh, that's what I need to get out of it as opposed to being the, you know, the top person in the country on some nuance that, you know, for me is probably nothing I'll ever have a return on investment on. So you've clearly devoted a, a large chunk of your professional life to medical care and emergency medical care. And uh, one of the things I saw on your website was a story about a woman named uh, Colleen who told you that she right. had metastatic ovarian cancer. And you wrote that as her body grew weaker, her determination and courage grew stronger. And having spent as much time as you did in, in emergency medical care and medical care in general, what have you learned about the will and determination of patients, folks like Colleen? What's, what's sort of been the biggest takeaway from the human conditions you've witnessed? Well, I think the biggest thing is, you know, great, great people can come in incredibly unassuming and diminutive packages. And so, you know, I look at Colleen, who was this petite woman, um, who was just a badass. I mean, just as tough as you can get with about, you know, the Mother Teresa sort of disposition. Yeah. Um, and was, was truly wonderful. The, the other thing that, you know, if I, if, if I was born to do anything, you know, other than being a dog, of course, if I was born to do anything, it would be to practice medicine. And the thing that I learned early and really have loved about it is early on, I got this perspective and I started calling it the if only look. Because then occasionally, unfortunately, I'll be the last people, last person people see before they die, you know, as I'm trying to resuscitate them or what have you. And I noticed a few times early on and even subsequently that sometimes people have this really, it's, it's almost an undescribably wistful and sad, deep, sad look on their face. And I started thinking of what's, you know, what is this? And I think it's, an, I, I interpreted it as the knowledge that they were dying with an unfulfilled life where they did not, where they did not take advantage of their God-given talents and attributes. And, you know, I, I saw the sign or saw this poster recently I used in lectures, you know, the definition of hell is the person, the person who you are meets the person you could have become on your deathbed. Oh, what I remember a, thinking, wow, that's I, I, yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, that is not what I want to have happened to me. I want to go through life and, you know, like this Hunter Thompson quote yelling, holy shit, what a ride. Wow. The person you are meets the person you could have become on your deathbed. That's really, really powerful. Wow. Yeah. Wow. 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 So uh, let's talk about this TEDx talk that you gave a couple of weeks ago. Uh, you did TEDx at ASU and uh, the, the videos yet, and unfortunately I was unable to attend uh, and the videos are not yet available. And Share with us what the overall subject concept of the TED Talk was. What did you want people to take away from what you shared? You know, I, I, I do a moderate amount of speaking, and the theme has always been, at least in my head, if this idiot can do it, anybody can. And I go to great lengths to disavow that those letters after my name mean anything that God knows I need a lot of education. And so... 
I, I, I truly believe that with perseverance, um, humility, and a good sense of humor, you can pretty much accomplish anything you set your mind to. And if I can impart that and that only, it's a win. The theme of the talk was a question not to ask ourselves or our children, which is what do you want to be when you grow up? Or what do you want to be when you finish a sentence? Because I think, you know, that frame of reference or that frame of mind really limits people's um, diversity. And, and, and once you limit your diversity, you limit a lot of you, you foreclose a lot of avenues that, that you could go down, but for this feeling of, oh my God, I got to pick something to do. You know, I've witnessed it with my kids. I've witnessed it with a lot of people I've mentored. And I've even, I've witnessed with myself, the, the broader your horizons are, the more opportunities that just seem to materialize. You know, it's interesting, right? Um, that resonates with me tremendously and a lot of the work that we're doing in, in the leadership space. And, you know, I think you're dead on asking young people and, and people in general, what do you want to be when you grow up? Puts an emphasis on, well, I have to pick something versus and slightly nuanced way of asking the question, what do you want to be a part of? And if we began directing people towards thinking about hey, what problem in the world would I like to be a part of solving? Or uh, what sort of product or service will, would I like to be a part of improving or bettering? Or what am I really passionate about? And where could I find an avenue to bring my God-given gifts, talents, strengths, put them to work in a way that not only feeds me internally, but also creates value so that um, people will vote with their wallets, right? I mean, following your passion only if the world doesn't need it, um, could be a very, very painful journey. Well, yeah, I, I think the way you phrased it actually was, was genius. Um, and I like it better than the way I phrase it. So I'll probably steal it. Feel the, free. Um, I always, yeah, I always ask people in myself, how do you want to change the world? How do you want to make the world a better place than the one in which you were born? And so I, I'd like to try to approach problems that way. Um, because I think that's one of the goals of everybody should leave the world a better place it should be a net positive that your your soul is on this earth and then a net negative and if you can figure that out and even if it's one one thing great if it's 10 things 10 times great absolutely absolutely can i go back just for a moment uh, i had a, a question in my head as we were talking about the story uh, about colleen and um, no one in my family is a medical practitioner. And frankly, I don't know all that many medical practitioners. So to have the opportunity to chat with you, having spent so much time, not only in the medical profession, but in the emergency room where, holy cow, I, I just, I can't even fathom what you've witnessed over the course of your career. And you've been a part of, of being the last person, as you mentioned, uh, that somebody sees before they, before they pass. Uh, What's that like? The it's well, it's a couple of things. One, it's incredibly sobering, and you realize first off how how fortunate we are because I truly think that that who who you are is mostly a matter of luck. It's your genetic makeup. It's to whom you were born and to the circumstances you were born into, and so you know I learned really early on that to separate my ego from the equation of dealing with patients. So I, I try not to let my ego get involved when someone comes in that's, that's intoxicated or on drugs or living on the street or anything, because I realized a long time ago how close 
any one of us could be to that. And so all these things that people seem to fight about or disagree about, you know, um, sexual preference, race, religion, all those things, my response was, if you had that genetic makeup, help me understand how that would not have been you if you were born in the Middle East, if you were born in the Deep South, blah, blah, blah. And there's really no answer for it. So I, I got humility really fast because that could have been me. And, and, and God bless them, nothing wrong with them. But I realized I was really fortunate that I don't have a chronic illness yet. I don't have some disfigurement or some no catastrophe has happened upon me. And it's really purely a matter of luck and genetics. And so uh, how about on the flip side? So you, you've, I have to imagine you've been a part of um, saving people from what might have been otherwise, if they were in the hands of somebody else, uh, a certain death. And to, to be a part of helping someone continue their life versus uh, having it end in your hands, what's that like? It's... You know, it's 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 rare to be honest. With well, the the perspective you're speaking of is rare, and it's happened I don't know, maybe five or ten times. Where well, I'll give you a quick example: someone collapsed in the courthouse. She worked there. They did CPR on her right away. They brought her in. I saw her in the emergency department, and she survived. And literally was up, awake, and talking the next day. Um, and I walked up, and her husband goes, "Hey, you know, this is the person who saved your life." And I said, "Well, actually, not really. The person who did CPR and did the courthouse saved your life." I just happened to the guy in the ER who, you know, knew a few things and got you upstairs quickly. Um, but it was it was gratifying that they got all this all this education and all the all the you know debt that goes along with it. Holy cow! It all literally came flashing right from my eyes and said, "Hey, all worth it." But I I think the less obvious, but the more gratifying is, is the people that you in their in their most downtrodden times when they don't have an ally. And you're the one who sits there and, you know, you put your hand on their leg or hold their hand or look them in the eye and say, hey, I'm on your team here and uh, and we're going to figure this out. Um, and if I can't figure it out with you, I'm going to find somebody that can. So I've got your back. And to see the look on their face that go from anguish to some sense of relief that, God, somebody really has my back, who I just met a few seconds ago or a few minutes ago, I get much more satisfaction out of that. The, the 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 folks who are really disenfranchised out there, at least for a brief period of time, feel like they have an ally where I can impact something and yeah, it may not save their life, but it may help their life along the way when they weren't expecting it. That to me is is gives me chills. That to me is much more gratifying. So is that really the the, the catalyst for you? I, I read somewhere, and it might have been on your site. It may have been in one of your blog posts that you know really. One of, if not the biggest, sense of enjoyment for you comes from seeing people light up when they realize that they can live the life of their dreams and have a really kick-ass time doing it. Is is that where that comes from? Yeah, it's I. It is I. You know, I've, I've mentored a lot of students over the years, and then you know, they mostly go into medicine or aspire to there, aspire to medicine, and then find out find another passion if medicine becomes medicine doesn't do it for them. But yeah, it's, it's seeing people go, holy cow, I can do that. And that's why I always, you know, kind of laugh with, and I'm serious about it. If this city can do it, anybody can, because most of these people at their age are far, far more accomplished than, than 
Iowa. I'm giving an award to a woman at the law school convocation at one o'clock today, and I'm literally writing the speech right now and looking at her, looking at her, her bio at her CV, and I'm just laughing, thinking, "Oh my God, this is like the absolute, you know, antithesis of who I was at that age." I mean, she is a badass, and what and pleasant and unassuming and. And she's a doll. And I'm like, oh, my God, that was so far from me at her age. She is so much more accomplished. Um, but if you talk to her, you know, she, too, like most people like me, you know, required some encouragement along the way, because for many a time, you don't really feel like you're anything special, that you really can't do anything, that, you know, you're going to be have all these challenges. And it's and I met her for coffee and I, I was saying, oh, my God, you are so unique. Do you realize it? And she's like. No, and she was very sincere. She just does not look at herself that way, which you know kind of makes it makes it even more enjoyable to point it out to her. Yeah, sure, absolutely. So, so given that, you know, one of the there was a quote I read. Uh, you recently wrote a blog post, uh, forty really great leadership quotes, and one of the quotes was was from Simon Black, and it said, "Stop wondering if you're good enough. Know you are, and start acting like it." And this quote in particular really resonated with me because I've also, uh, you speak quite a bit about the importance of humility and being humble. You know, given everything that you've accomplished, how do you strike the right balance between being humble and at the same time, giving all that, uh, given all that you've accomplished, knowing that you are enough and you're acting like you are enough. And so strike that balance for me, at least personally is really difficult. It's, it's a struggle. How how do you do it? Well, you know, it's a quote and I think it was, I think it's Socrates. You know, it's the wise man knows he knows nothing. And it's really easy to be humble when you meet some people or read books and you read about, about Teddy Roosevelt and all the articles, all the books, all that he did, you're like, in, 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 you know, the age before cell phones and computers and typewriters. And like, how did this guy do this? All? I'm a loser. <laughs> and he's killing it. And so, or, you know, you meet some of these guys, you know, my, my son's finishing next week. He graduates from fighter pilot school and, and down in Texas. And I met one of the guys he flies with Kevin who has his PhD in astrophysics from MIT. And he's in Michael's class that he's graduating. In fact, they're both going to fly A-10s. And, you know, you talk to this guy and he's so chill. He's so laid back. You never know the guy was brilliant, but he's brilliant. And it's pretty easy to be humble when you, when you are around people that are humble and far more accomplished than I'll ever be. Like, okay, what am I bragging about? You know, this guy's a, this, this guy or this girl is really cool. And I'm, you know, a poser. So it, that, that has not been a hard balance to strike for me, as you can probably tell. Do you think people, you know, uh, so so uh, if people don't know you, haven't had the opportunity to spend time with you, see you on LinkedIn or a copy of a resume or uh, see your name as one of the speakers and obviously what follows your name is a variety of uh, academic uh, accomplishments and initials. You think people are intimidated by that and immediately sort of put you in a, in a realm or a sphere that they just you're better than them. Do you think that happens? And then I open my mouth and it all comes crashing down. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, I always, you know, people point out, you know, the letters. I said, it's interesting the movie catch me if you can. I said, I'm, I'm catch me if you can too. It's, it's all, it's all, it's really all BS. And it's, it's literally because 
I just like, I like to learn stuff and, you know, I like to learn stuff that the people think has, and I thought too, has, has value in it. The only thing that separates me is, you know, I was probably dumb enough to, to do it and need it and look at you. You don't need it. You don't need to have all education. You're cool enough as you are, you know, as you stand here, I, <laughs> I felt like I needed it all. So I'm, I, I think, you know, they always say the second you think you're humble, you're not because you're not humble if you think you are. So I, I always think that I'm easy to approach and I usually have a smile on my face. I'm usually doing something stupid. You know, I've been told that I'm intimidating in the candidly, I don't see that side of myself. And I've thought about it a lot because the last thing I want to be is intimidating. Um, but, but candidly, I've heard it and I'm trying to figure out a way to be not intimidating. I don't think I am. I think I'm easy. No, I mean, I, so, uh, I've been fortunate to, uh, to have met you and spent some time with you. And yeah, I agree a hundred percent. Um, having, you know, I, I will admit prior to meeting you and doing some research on, uh, you know, those who were enrolled in the program that we got to spend time in, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a, an impressive group of individuals and no, yeah. no one stood out though, at least on paper, uh, more than you did. And what, and I have to agree having now spent time with you and having had the chance to get to know you a little bit. Yeah. That, that sense of humility, you live it. I mean, you are the most approachable down to earth, uh, guy with an incredible amount of education. I mean, it's, it's really, it's, it's truly impressive, truly impressive. There was well, a, thanks. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There's a uh, there was a, there was a, a a playwright named Tom Stoppard. He wrote a play uh, back in the uh, I want to say it was the 90s called Arcadia, and from that was a really interesting quote. It was something to the effect of, "It's an amazing time to be alive. A door like this has only opened up five or six times since man has got up onto its hind legs." It's the most amazing time to be alive when almost everything you thought you knew is wrong. And, and oh, I love that quote. Yeah, it's a great quote. And I share it because having spent as much time as you did in the medical field and continue to do so, there was something you recognized when you made the decision to found uh, MeMD. Talk about what it was that led to MeMD. Well, the, I, I started a company before that, and it was an urgent care company, and urgent cares weren't really much in existence then. And, you know, it's, I'm embarrassed to say that, that I started that company because the, the type of people that go to urgent cares were generally those I didn't want to see in the ER because I, in the emergency department, I like emergencies. I like taking care of really sick patients or traumatized patients. I thought, okay, we've got to have all these patients who aren't all that sick out here because I don't want to see them, so start an urgent care. And I just literally made every mistake in the book and, and finally was, you know, it had a modicum of success and had an ungraceful exit from it. And during my ungraceful exit, I was, was really thinking, okay, what's the next, what's going to put urgent cares, you know, what's going to make, what's going to make what we had been doing in the past, EDs, urgent cares, and even some PCP offices obsolete. And, and that was the metamorphosis like that underwent in banking and education from in-person to virtual. And and that's really was the genesis of the MD. And it was really to help urgent cares because I thought, gosh, if we could start seeing patients all over the state or all over the country with the providers that we have waiting to see patients in person, that would fill up their downtime and, and lower 
um, you know, without adding any costs and um, keep the re- keep their overhead the same and increase their revenue. And that really morphed into you know this kind of direct to consumer virtual care, which which really was me and me. And you know, me and me is still evolving as are the other virtual medicine companies. And I think for some things that I've done in the past, it's really been out of the wouldn't it be cool if and then fill in the blank. And I've had a few of those. I'm like, gosh, wouldn't it be cool if blah blah blah? And then I'll say, Oh, gosh, why doesn't seem that hard? You know, maybe I ought to try it. And you know, generally it's nine you know, a thousand times harder than I thought it was going to be, but generally I'm too dumb to quit and ultimately <laughs> try to figure it out or it fails. Well, I've had the opportunity, uh, as much as I, uh, I wish I didn't because I prefer to stay healthy, but uh, I use the the, uh, the MD, uh, which for those of you that don't know it, it's MeMD.me, so spelled just like it sounds, MeMD.me, and uh, was you know feeling under the weather, didn't feel like going uh, to my primary care physician. Uh, even if I did, the chances of getting an appointment when I really needed it were probably slim to none. So you log on, and within minutes, literally within minutes, I had the prescription I knew I needed because this is an ailment, a respiratory uh, ailment that I've, you know, unfortunately suffered from time uh, a few times before. And within minutes, I had a prescription waiting for me at my neighborhood Walgreens. I mean, the 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 convenience of it is is just ridiculous. And I remember attending. Uh, a CEO summit of sorts a couple of years ago, and somebody from the medical profession was on stage, and there was a quote they they said that in healthcare, uh, you know, convenience is the new black, if you will. Like if convenience is the next frontier of competitive advantage for for healthcare, um, do you believe that? Uh, how does that sit with you? Um, I think it's dead on. You know, there's a book I read years ago by Regina Herzinger, who's a, who is a Harvard. She's the first female tenured faculty in the Harvard Business School. And I've gotten, I was able to, you know, meet her and talk to her and communicate with her over the years. And she wrote a book called Consumer, among others, Consumer Driven Healthcare. And what first struck me about this is that I was in Moscow and I went to a McDonald's there. And it struck me it was the exact same experience that I had. Other than people were dressed up there, it was the exact same experience at McDonald's here. Food tasted the same. Um, it was a great customer experience. And I remember thinking, gosh, this is what's missing in healthcare, price transparency and consumer-centric or consumer-focused, which sounds very trite nowadays. But in, in, the, in, in 95, when I was over there, people didn't think of, patients being interested in convenience and consumerism and but you know of course they are and i i do think convenience is the new um black in healthcare, where it's the the quality is a given and very soon convenience will be given too and if you don't have both of those as givens in your organization you're going to fail so i've always looked with kind of wonder at folks who are starting healthcare ventures that that are highest priced, you know, high price or inconvenient because I just don't see how that is a strategy for success. <laughs> um, even if it works out of the gate and there's even a number of them now that are just, you know, they're, they're blossoming all over, all over. And I'm like, God, this seems like a very short term play. I just don't see how this is having long term legs. Yeah. You know, it's probably a whole nother, uh, chat we could have around transparency when it comes to pricing in healthcare. You know, it's fascinating to me that, of all the things we consume, healthcare for the longest time and, and in most circumstances still is one of the uh, highest price 
consumable services uh, that 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 we buy. Yet we almost never know what it is we're buying and how much it costs, which is just to me a fascinating concept. We've just become so used to oh, the insurance company will take care of it. I pay my copay, and on we go. And obviously, that uh, certainly is probably a contributor to the, to the disaster situation our healthcare system is in. Well, in you know, I literally just had this conversation an hour ago, which we were talking about you know, the the cost of uh, medication, and I said, "Candidly, I, I don't know the cost of all the medications I write. I mean, I may have a ballpark of I think it's less than hundred bucks, but if you said, "Hey, gosh, how much is this? You know, augmenting in a cost? I don't know. What's your copay? What plan do you have? It could be ten dollars with your copay. It could be two hundred dollars if you're paying out of pocket or out of network. I simply don't have that bandwidth to know that." And, and, but I can at least should be expected to know it because I should, patients should expect that, hey, if you're going to prescribe this, I mean, how much am I going to pay for it? What's the ROI on this medication versus this medication? Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Let's, just for a moment, let's talk about, um, let's talk about doctors just for a moment. I want to talk about it in the concept uh, uh, around the topic of leadership. So, much has been written and, and shared about the dynamic between doctors and the other healthcare professionals that they work with, and of course, between doctors and the patients that they serve. It, it appears, based on all that's out there, that there's some overwhelming feeling that, the, that doctors have lost their sense of empathy. And from a leadership perspective, to not have empathy, to not have that sense of an emotional intelligence and an awareness of how you're coming across with those that you're directly and indirectly impacting, um, without that, I, I think you begin to move away from being a leader and, and, and beginning to move towards, uh, if you were to have leadership on one side of the spectrum and tyranny or a tyrant on the other side, without empathy, you start to move towards tyranny. And, and I'm curious, do you believe that empathy is being lost or squandered away with, with physicians and, and uh, you know, some of the, the more senior healthcare professionals? And if so, why? What's happening? Well, I, I, think, you know, I think medical schools today are doing a great job, from what I can tell, of selecting students who are multidimensional and have a and have a relatively high EQ. They're, they're not perfect, but but they certainly are skewing towards that, thankfully. Because I think now people people understand the value of that the emotional intelligence and empathy in relationship to patient care. I mean there's been studies on physicians, surgeons who've been sued because they had a condescending tone in their voice and how they have a propensity to be sued more than surgeons who don't. Um, it was talked about in Blink, it was written up in it's called the Journal of Surgery. Um, I don't know if I can take a broad swipe at the medical profession and say that we as a group are losing our empathy. You know, when you talk to some of us, they'll make the excuse of, you know, we're being beaten down, blah, blah, blah. And, and there is a lot of cataclysmic change that goes on in healthcare right now. Um, and I've seen people of my generation um, lose the human side of what they're doing. And, and what I tell, so I told my son, who was who was pre-med or what we both, my wife and I both told them is don't go into medicine unless you love it. Unless you could say, I'd rather cut off my arm. I'd cut off my arm to get in. If you have that feeling about it, it's for you. But if you don't, 
it's it's not a great profession. It's not one where you're rich. It's not one where you're revered. It's one that you have to get your satisfaction internally from your from the interaction you have with your patients. And I see my colleagues, you know, from medical school who did not have that way back then, don't have it now. And now they're burned out and they're bitter and and they're not happy. And but the ones who went in it for the reason of you know what, I'm here to help people. The fact that I get paid for it is certainly a bonus, but at the end of the day, my satisfaction is derived from the knowledge that I'm helping people. And I tell people all the time, I practice medicine most days for free in the few days that you couldn't pay me enough to do it. You know, that's it's horrific enough where I'm like, God, I do not want to do this ever again. But for the most part, I do it for free because that does provide me with that level of satisfaction. Well, and, um, I, and I think there's a lot of physicians out there that feel that way. So it's hard to say that we as a profession are losing our empathy. Well, and I think what you just hit on is uh, something that's near and dear to uh, to me and, and my team. And that's that this there's a real difference between the en- extrinsic motivation and the intrinsic motivation. And, uh, you know, much of the way uh, employers and their employees are connecting uh, in the employment process is largely based on extrinsic motivation. You know, how much am I going to get paid? What's going to be my title? What are my benefits? What are the additional perks I'm going to get? Um, and, and we're just, we're missing the opportunity to really understand intrinsically what is it that the organization is trying to do in the world to make it a better place. And if I, as an individual, I'm going to go spend my time there which is going to end up being two thirds of our life working. So we're going to spend the majority of our life working. Is this company a place where it's going to feed my intrinsic desires? Is this going to be somewhere where at the end of every day I can lay down at night and say to myself, I made a difference today and it mattered. Oh, and I get paid for it. And and that's just missing, unfortunately, right now. It, it, it definitely, as I just said at dinner the other night, and I was talking to a physician in practice emergency medicine, and it, it was funny because we're, I'm, I think I'm about five years older, and he was, and I said, hey, you know, do you still enjoy it? And he goes, oh my God, he goes, these patients coming in with their stupid complaints, and all they want is pain medication, and I've got to be the one to tell them, no, I'm not giving them pain medication, and just deal with it. And, and I was listening to him, and I was, you know, inside going, oh, you poor bastard, because Clearly, he is not enjoying again what you described aptly as you know two thirds of his life, and he's miserable, um, and he can't wait to get out of it. But it's all pers- it, it, and I I started it on the perspective path with him and realized I was you know going to get shut out quick, so I stopped. But <laughs> at the end of the day, it's simply perspective. Yeah, no, it truly is, truly is. All right, so total off the wall question. Uh, it's my, one of my favorites. Uh, if there's a lull in a conversation that I'm having with somebody at a networking event, this one seems to at least, uh, you know, uh, spur things up, uh, deserted Island question. What three albums are you taking with you? If you're going to be stuck for a really long time on a deserted Island. Oh my God. That's easy. Um, born. So the, but it's really easy, really boring. So born to run. Springsteen, love it. Uh, the, the the new river, Springsteen, and probably um, um, a more recent. Uh, hate to be all three Springsteen. So how about how about the new river as one? It's two records, but you know one album. Sure. Uh, Born to Run certainly, and maybe Eagles Hotel California. All or, right. 
Yeah, Eagles all built California. Uh, I love it. I love it. So you're you're uh, you're a classic rock guy, a real Americana at heart. I love it. I love it. Um, yeah, I'm a Springsteen fan through and through. Oh, he's great. He's just fantastic. Oh, such a sad day when Clarence Clemens passed. So sad. So sad. Yeah. Um, John, you've accomplished so much. Uh, what's next? Um, probably, um, I certainly want a couple, couple exits from business, you know, some business I've been working on for a number of years. Um, I'd like to go back, um, some, at some point I want to do a culinary school, either abroad or here. And then at some, I'd love to go back to the Kennedy school of government and learn about that. Cause I think I've got a huge knowledge gap with, you know, how the government works and, and the interactions between nation states. So I think that'd be fascinating. Um, I would say those, yeah, I think those two would, would be it for me. And maybe, um, maybe spend a little more time um, with my feet up um, as opposed to running. <laughs> Did I, you know, uh, but may, only a little. May, maybe, oh, I think we just, uh, did we just lose you? Son of a gun. Well, folks, uh, such as technology, uh, at least we were getting near the very end of our conversation with John, and uh, as luck would have it, we lost him. So uh, thank you very much for listening to the Built on Purpose podcast. That was Dr. John Schufelt, not only a doctor, but a whole bunch of other things. Uh, Very much appreciate it, and we will see you on the next episode of the Built on Purpose podcast. Until next time, folks, thanks for listening. You can obtain a transcribed version of this show and hear more interviews from the Built on Purpose podcast on our website, whyscouts.com forward slash podcast. If you have any questions you'd like me to send John, drop me a line at brian at whyscouts.com and I'll gladly forward them on. If you enjoyed John's interview, there are several others I think you'll dig as well. Andy Cernovitz, author of Word of Mouth Marketing, How Smart Companies Get People Talking, and also the founder and CEO of GasPedal.com, Ray Del Muro, founder and CEO of Refresh Glass, and Ann Rhodes, former chief people officer at Southwest Airlines and author of Built on Values, are just a few of the many episodes you can find at wisecouts.com forward slash podcast. I promise more great interviews are on the way. Thanks again for listening.